You're listening to Enchanted, a podcast on the history of magic, sorcery, and witchcraft. I'm Corinne Wieben. A quick heads up before we get started. This episode involves graphic violence and cannibalism. Listener discretion is advised. It should have been a happy occasion, a symbol of hope and unity in a country still reeling from the shock of losing not one, but two kings to untimely deaths. Not only had France lost King Henry II to a terrible jousting accident in 1559, but his son and heir, Francis II, had succumbed to an infection the following year, making a widow of Mary, Queen of Scots, and leaving his mother, Catherine de' Medici, to rule France as regent on behalf of his younger brother. The instability of the French monarchy had allowed the rise of the Protestant Huguenot faction, and tensions were building. Catherine sought to arrange a peace between the Catholic monarchy and Huguenot nobles by arranging the marriage of her daughter, Princess Margaret, to the Protestant king of Navarre, Henry III. Not everyone was pleased. Henry and Margaret were married on August 18, 1572. Thousands of Protestant supporters had come to Paris to attend the wedding festivities. A few days later, Catholic assassins attacked and severely wounded a prominent Huguenot leader. Fearing reprisals, Catherine met with her advisors, and the decision was made to eliminate Protestant leaders. Officials in Paris were ordered to bar the gates and arm the Catholic peasantry, to prevent a Protestant rebellion. Catholic soldiers and Parisian citizens alike began hunting Protestants in the streets, including women and children. The killings continued for three days, spreading out to the provinces and resulting in the slaughter of Protestants in multiple cities, including Toulouse, Bordeaux, Lyon, Rouen, and Orléans. In the end, Thousands of Protestants had died in the widespread violence, later known as the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre. Shocking as this violence was, by 1572 France had already grown accustomed to cataclysmic religious violence. The French wars of religion had been raging for a decade before Catherine de' Medici ordered the wholesale slaughter of French Protestants, and they wouldn't come to a close until the end of the century. Catholics and Protestants throughout France attacked each other without mercy, a result of more radical forms of Calvinist Protestantism and Jesuit Catholicism making inroads. It shouldn't come as a surprise, then, that a nation experiencing monstrous violence should begin to see some of its own people as monsters. In today's Season 2 finale and special Halloween episode, I bring you the stories of werewolves in early modern France. Though lore about shapeshifters existed in French culture before the early modern period, the 16th century saw dozens of people tried as werewolves. Most of those accused were men, 
aligning with larger cultural ideas about masculinity, sexuality, and violence. The werewolf in particular, a man who can change his shape into that of a wolf, often at will, represents a kind of irrational, bestial violence. And these trials often involved a variety of taboos, including sexual violence, attacks on women and children, and cannibalism. But when is a wolf not a wolf? The origin of the word werewolf is the subject of some controversy. The prefix were is often thought to mean man, from the Latin vir, but it doesn't transfer into Romance languages, like French, where the werewolf is the loup-garou. Neither does traditional folklore apply were to humans who transform into any other kind of creature. At least one scholar has argued that the prefix were likely comes from the Old English varg, meaning a dangerous outsider, a criminal outcast. Faced with a plague of werewolves in the 16th century, French officials used the protocols of witch trials to prosecute them. The earliest known example of such a trial was held in Besançon in 1521, but it was really the latter half of the century that saw the bulk of these werewolf trials. There were probably some 50 trials held in France between 1521 and the last known trial in 1603, including the trials of Gilles Garnier in 1573 and the Gandillon family shortly thereafter, both in the region of Franche-Comté, a series of trials in Orléans in 1583, the trials of Jacques Roulet and of Nicolas Damont in Rennes in 1598, and of Jean Grenier in Bordeaux in 1603. As with early modern witch trials, these trials often involved a defendant who is considered an outsider, largely distrusted by the community. They also include stories of repeated acts of extreme violence, often against women and children who happen to venture too far from the safety of the village. The werewolf, then, is neither wolf nor man. The werewolf is the other, the stranger to be feared, our shadow. He's the danger that lurks in the woods at the edges of civilization. On September 13, 1573, the Court of Parliament at Dole declared that in the territories of Espagny, Salvange, Courchapon, and the neighboring villages has often been seen and met for some time past a werewolf, who, it is said, has already seized and carried off several little children, so that they have not been seen since, and since he has attacked and done injury in the country to some horsemen, who kept him off only with great difficulty and danger to their persons, the said court, desiring to prevent any greater danger, has permitted and does permit those who are abiding or dwelling in the said places and others, notwithstanding all edicts concerning the chase, to assemble with pikes, halberts, arquebuses, and sticks, to chase and to pursue the said werewolf in every place where they may find or seize him, to tie and to kill, without incurring any pains or penalties. The hunt was on. 
Gilles Garnier and his wife Apolline lived in a small hovel far from the town of Dole, in the Franche-Comté region of eastern France, described in one account as a sombre, ill-looking fellow who walked in a stooping attitude, with a pale face, livid complexion and deep-set eyes, under a pair of coarse and bushy brows which met across his forehead. With his remote location, lack of friends, and long beard, locals soon dubbed him the Hermit of San Bono. On the evening of November 8, 1573, a group of peasants were walking through the forest on their way home from the fields when they saw a monstrous creature attacking a young girl. He seemed to tear at her, and she was already wounded in several places. When the peasants ran to help her, the creature fled. Some reported that they had seen a wolf, others that they had seen the hermit. Less than a week later, a ten-year-old boy disappeared. He was last seen outside the village gates, headed toward the woods. The residents of Dole had no doubt that a monster lived among them. They soon seized Gilles and Apolline, who both testified, though it's unclear under what level of duress, that Gilles was a werewolf. Gilles confessed that in September he had assumed the form of a wolf and attacked a girl, perhaps 10 or 11 years old, that he had slain her with his teeth and claws, taken her into the woods, stripped her, and eaten the flesh from her legs and arms. He reported that he enjoyed this meal so much that he brought a portion back home for Apolline. He then confessed to attacking the girl he had been seen with, saying he had assumed the form of a wolf once again on November 8th and seized another girl, taking her into the woods when a group of peasants spotted him and he had been forced to run. On November 14th, however, he became a wolf again and attacked and strangled the 10-year-old boy just outside of Dole. As before, he claimed to have eaten the boy. He also confessed to the killing of another boy, aged 12 or 13, whom he had lured into the woods outside the village of Perus. He said that he had intended to eat the boy as he had the other children, but was interrupted by a group of men and ran. The men who had seen him testified that they had seen not a wolf, but a man. On his own confession and the testimony against him, Gilles Garnier was convicted of using witchcraft to transform himself into a werewolf and sentenced to death by burning. The sentence was carried out on January 18, 1574. Not all werewolves were grown men. In at least one instance, the last known of this type of trial, the defendant was an adolescent boy. On a spring afternoon on the shores of the Bay of Biscay, a group of village girls tended their sheep while walking along the sand dunes that bordered a dense pine forest. Suddenly, something in the dunes spooked their sheep and set their dogs to growling. They cautiously climbed a dune and looked down, only to see a boy of some 13 or 14 years old. One account suggests an appearance that must have frightened the girls. His hair was of a tawny red and thickly matted, 
falling over his shoulders and completely covering his narrow brow. His small, pale gray eyes twinkled with an expression of horrible ferocity and cunning, from deep, sunken hollows. The complexion was of a dark olive color, the teeth were strong and white, and the canine teeth protruded over the lower lip when the mouth was closed. The boy's hands were large and powerful, the nails black and pointed like bird's talons. He was ill-clothed and seemed to be in the most abject poverty. The few garments he had on him were in tatters, and through the rents the emaciation of his limbs was plainly visible. Before any word of introduction, he asked the girls who was the prettiest in their group, offering to marry the prettiest once they decided who that would be. The girls laughed. Surely he was joking. They knew nothing about him. I am the son of a priest, he said. One of the girls retorted, Is that why you're so dingy? If I am, he replied, It's because sometimes I wear a wolf skin. The girls were intrigued. And just who, pray tell, gave him a wolf skin? You want to know about the wolf skin, he grinned. Pierre Laborant gave me that. He wraps it round me, and every Monday, Friday, and Sunday, and for about an hour at dusk every other day, I am a wolf, a werewolf. I have killed dogs and drunk their blood, but little girls taste better. Their flesh is tender and sweet, their blood rich and warm. I have eaten many a maiden, as I've been on my raids together with my nine companions. I am a werewolf, and if the sun were to set, I would soon fall on one of you and make a meal of you. At this, the boy broke into peals of mad, howling laughter, and the girls ran for their lives. In a nearby village lived another girl, who knew all too well how frightening this boy could be. It so happened the boy's name was Jean Grenier. He was the son of a poor laborer, not a priest, and he had been tormenting 13-year-old Marguerite Poirier for some time. While she tended her sheep, Jean told Marguerite that he had sold himself to the devil, and in doing so had received the power to assume the shape of a wolf. He said he had killed and eaten many dogs, but nothing compared to the flesh of the two young girls he confessed to killing, describing his delight to poor Marguerite. One night, Marguerite burst into her family's home and said she had been attacked. She told her parents that she was walking back through the woods when she heard a rustling in the brush. An enormous beast leapt out and began tearing at her with razor-sharp fangs and claws. Its fur was reddish in color, and it was slightly smaller than a true wolf. She beat back the beast with her shepherd's crook and fled to the safety of the village, leaving her flock behind. On hearing Marguerite's story, the villagers were outraged. Several girls had gone missing of late, and clearly, Jean Grenier was to blame. The matter was taken to the parliamentary court at Bordeaux, and Jean was arrested and questioned. It turned out the boy had left his family home a few months earlier, taking odd jobs when he could and sleeping rough and begging for his meals in the meantime. Jean told the authorities that everything Marguerite said was true. 
He had sold his soul to the devil in exchange for the power of shapeshifting. He confessed that he did attack Marguerite, intending to kill and eat her. He said he had only killed one dog, a white one, but that he did not drink its blood. Asked if he had, in fact, killed children and eaten them, he said that one day he wandered into a house in a small village and found it empty, except for a child in a cradle. Seizing the opportunity, he carried the child into the garden and ate it. He then confessed to killing a girl whose name he did not know, and another child he happened to come across. He then shocked the court by accusing his father of also being a werewolf. He said that his father also had a wolf skin, which he used to transform into a wolf, in which form he had also killed and eaten a young girl. Jean said his stepmother had recently left his father, and he suspected that it was because she knew their secret. Jean's father was arrested. The court reconstructed the times and places when Jean said his attacks took place, and one by one, the villagers connected them to the disappearances of their children. When Marguerite entered the court, Jean pointed out her wounds, saying he had made them with his teeth while he was a wolf. The only time his story faltered was when Jean faced his father in court. He began to change the details of his story, and the court began to doubt that Jean's father was guilty of any crime beyond the neglect of his son. With Jean's confession and witness testimonies concluded, one court official gave a speech arguing that Jean was surely a murderer, but that the tales of witchcraft, packs with the devil, the magical wolfskin, and his transformation into a wolf was pure fiction. Jean was a monster, he declared, but a human one. He argued that the boy was clearly simple, incapable of understanding the enormity of his crimes, and deluded into believing himself to be a wolf at times. The official pled for mercy, pointing to the boy's youth and questioning his mental capacity. The court did show mercy in its way, sentencing Jeanne to perpetual imprisonment in a nearby monastery. After seven years, at the age of 20, Jean Grenier died in captivity. The stories of Gilles Garnier and Jean Grenier are remarkable to us only because of their supernatural elements. As we grow and learn the terrible things that humans can do to one another, it reinforces something we knew instinctively as children. Monsters are real. While some of the people of 16th century France saw these violent acts as the deeds of wild beasts, others knew that monsters come in human form as well. At Gilles Garnier's trial, some of the peasants who saw him with the girl testified that they saw not a wolf, but a man. In Jean Grenier's trial, Marguerite Poirier was the only witness who claimed to have seen him as a wolf. The rest of those who had rescued dogs or children from his grasp said they had seen a human boy. In 1580, at the height of this era of werewolf trials, the French humanist philosopher Michel de Montaigne wrote an essay titled Of Cannibals. In it, he describes an account of an indigenous tribe of cannibals 
recited to him, or so he claims, by a recent traveler to the Americas. As he describes this tribe's propensity to ritually kill and eat their enemies, he cautions his readers against passing moral judgment, writing, I find that there is nothing barbarous and savage in this nation by anything that I can gather, excepting that everyone gives the title of barbarism to everything that is not in use in his own country. I conceive there is more barbarity in eating a man alive than when he is dead, in tearing a body limb from limb by racks and torments that is yet in perfect sense, in roasting it by degrees, in causing it to be bitten and worried by dogs and swine, as we have not only read but lately seen, not amongst inveterate and mortal enemies, but among neighbors and fellow citizens, and, which is worse, under color of piety and religion, than to roast and eat him after he is dead. To Montaigne, the real savagery was the violence being done by his French countrymen against those outside of their religious and social communities. 16th century France didn't need werewolves. It was already drowning in blood thanks to the wars of religion. There's little scholarly explanation as to why these werewolf trials ceased in or around 1603, but it may have something to do with the stabilizing of France's monarchy under its new king. Henry of Navarre, whose marriage to Princess Margaret helped spark the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre, became King Henry IV of France in 1589. To gain the support of the Catholic nobility, the Huguenot Henry converted from his Calvinist faith to Catholicism. But in 1598, he issued the Edict of Nantes, which granted official legal toleration to Huguenots in France and ended the state-sanctioned violence between Catholics and Protestants. When the people of early modern France saw inhuman violence in their midst, many understood it for what it was. But for some, it couldn't possibly be the work of human hands. Only monsters could commit such unthinkable acts. And if they sometimes appeared to be human, that was only a disguise they wore until they could assume once again their true bestial form. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can subscribe to Enchanted wherever you listen. Rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts helps new listeners find us. So if you want to help spread the word, please leave us a review and tell your friends about us. This week's episode was produced by me with original music by Purple Planet. You can find them at purple-planet.com. You can get in touch with us via email at enchantedpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Enchanted Podcast and on Twitter at Enchanted Pod. To learn more about the show or to become a supporter and help keep the magic going, please visit EnchantedPodcast.net. I'm Corinne Wieben. Thank you for listening and stay enchanted.